0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have Aaron Sabarian with us. He is with the Washington Free Beacon and a lot to discuss with him. But before we do, Aaron, it is a holiday weekend. Did you bring anything to the table for this discussion?
1: I don't have anything at the table right now, but last night I had a little bottle of uh cold sake Japanese wine. Ooh, that's that a good one. That was that was good. It was good.
0: Nice. David, what about you? Well at the time of this
2: recording it's about to be Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. So I bought uh I brought Fireball whiskey, which probably is not really associated with the holiday, but it's 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 cinnamon. So it's sort of apples and, you know, I don't know. It was the best I could do. I didn't have any apple
0: schnapps or anything like that. So <laughs> Okay, Cheers. well, so before we get to that, you've got to tell me, is there something you, you do? The, I, I love learning about the holidays. Is there something with Rosh Hashanah where apples and cinnamon has?
2: Um, apples and honey are the traditional food. So, uh okay. yeah, dip an apple and honey and you've pretty much done the holiday.
0: Well, and now can you drink during the holiday or? Yes. You can. So you this can is a holiday drink. that you, you can absolutely drink. Okay, okay. You can absolutely drink.
2: Yom Kippur, which is. The uh, Day of Atonement, that's coming up in a a little bit. That's when you can't eat or drink. So uh, but this is celebratory. This is all good.
0: Okay. All right. All right. Well, and then I'm I'm still on my Texas seltzer kick. So my spiked seltzer today is agave and lime. So not as fun as your fireball. (laughs) Well, take us away, David.
2: So I've had the chance to uh, get to know Aaron a bit. Um, Aaron um has a very unique uh niche in covering uh anti-wokeness really. I think you, you could say, Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong, you sort of in addition to whatever else you cover, you have sort of an anti-woke beat. Um yeah. and um yeah two two stories that um uh, I saw came out from Aaron that I thought were both groundbreaking in a way. Um, One was the role of private school accrediting institutions in sort of imposing coercive ideologies on private schools. And the other was the role uh, of the current work of the American Bar Association in forcing law schools to adopt uh, DEI and certain hiring standards as well. Um, And so maybe we should start there. First of all, tell us a little bit about how you came to this beat at the Washington
1: Free Beacon? Well, I would say the story begins in uh, late October, early November 2015, uh, when I was at Yale University at the height of the uh, Christakis affair, Halloween gate, whatever you want to call it, uh, Mm this sort of uh, na- you know, nationwide uprising of woke college students that began at Yale, but then quickly spread to other institutions too. Um, that, I was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News at the time, and that experience did play some role in what you might call my radicalization, it uh, made me realize that things were bad and the insanity was a lot more uh, deeply rooted than I had thought. Um, and at that moment I kind of realized, wow, you know, the future judges, future lawyers, future politicians, some of them are going to believe this crap. And sure enough, uh, in the next, uh, over the next, I guess now half decade, we've seen more and more institutions capitulate to this ideology. Um, and so I've been sort of, Worried about this and seen it up close for a while Um, And I would say that's largely how I eventually came to Free Beacon um, and ended up wanting to cover this uh, Because there's this this meme that it's just sort of fragile college kids walking on eggshells You know that you can't take a joke That's not really that's not really a sufficient account of what's going on. I mean, mm. and, and you don't see people saying that as much anymore, but it was popular for a while. But no, the reality is that as those college students become the the staff of institutions as they graduate, the institutions are transformed and wokeism becomes institutionalized. Uh, so the mm. idea that the real world would just destroy this ideology that it wouldn't survive contact with reality, that just proved to be wrong. Instead, what happened was this ideology transformed reality. Um, And so what I try to do is uh, chronicle the specific kind of institutional levers by which this ideology gains power first and then exerts it second.
2: Hmm. So that must have been a very harrowing time during Halloween Gate, at Yale, I, I'm curious to know a little bit about what it was like to be somebody who didn't agree with the student mob in that situation, how that affected your social life, how it affected your standing at the newspaper. What was that like for you?
1: Um, I was fortunate enough to have a good group of friends who either agreed with me or at least did not regard disagreement as a sign of moral evil. Um, And so it didn't really affect my social life too, too much. I mean, there were people who really hated my guts, but they weren't the kinds of people I would have probably been friends with or wanted to be friends with anyway. Um, As to how it affected life at the paper, uh, I mean, people knew that I wasn't of it and so there were definitely some some tensions uh frankly the 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 dissidents were so outnumbered that you know at a certain point you learned to pick your battles and you know this was one where just you know, weren't going to win um, we were going to cover it from a particular point of view um the coverage was going to be slanted in one direction um, and there wasn't a whole lot any individual could do about that um, but it, I mean, it was fine. Um, and after I finished being the opinion editor, I did that when I was a sophomore. So I had two years afterwards, um, to just write columns. Uh, cause when you're an editor, they don't want you to write, but once you're done with it, you can go back to writing. Um, so when I started writing columns again, I, you know, kind of went on a one man, you know, culture war against, uh, against wokeism at Yale. and. You know, like occasionally, I'd write something that really pissed people off, and I got a lot of crap on Facebook for it. You just kind of learn to deal with it. Um, I think it thickened my skin in a uh, a very healthy way, actually. Uh, hmm. So yeah, you know, I, I mean, I guess once or twice someone came up to me at Starbucks and said something mean, but it wasn't it wasn't terrible. Um, and again, I mean, I, I also would say it like I cared what people were saying at any given moment. You know whatever anyone was saying, it would have been tough. But you just learn to not give a shit, mm. um, and that's the that's the key.
2: Mm. So you've done these two stories that I've mentioned. I, I, I there there are others as well. Um, tell us what you're finding about how these ideas are becoming institutionalized, and you can use the case studies of the ABA and the private school accreditation, and maybe draw some broader inferences about how what's happening.
1: Sure so I'll start with those and then I'll, I'll broaden out. So uh, both the ABA and the private school accreditation process is a story of how certifying and credentialing institutions uh, are captured by ideologues and then how adherence to the ideology becomes simply a requirement for certification and legitimacy. It's almost seen as, you know, apolitical. It's not even an ideological thing. It's just, this is what we do. This is just what you do to be accredited and to be legitimate. Um, and so the danger of this capture is that it depoliticizes or at least creates the illusion of depoliticization around what is in fact a highly political uh, ideology. Um And it does so in institutions that are set up to enforce that ideology, precisely because the institutions are supposed to be, you know, above ideology and just kind of neutral technocratic arbiters of, you know, of whether you're teaching kids law or math or science or what have you. Um, and that same process, I would argue, is playing out in other institutions, not just Uh, private or law school accreditation. Um, I have a piece forthcoming about this uh, by the time the podcast is out, it'll already be out um, on, on the CDC and how, you know, what the CDC put out this like inclusive language guide uh, for healthcare professionals, how to speak inclusively, which is loaded with jargon. um, You know, it says that biologically male and female are, are terms to be avoided, um, you know, and it cites the activist group GLAAD, uh, which is not exactly a moderate group um, mm-hmm. at all. But, you know, it does this and it's framed as just, uh, you know, here are, here are some terms that, you know, healthcare professionals think are, you know, better and non-stigmatizing. And here are a list of resources and references if you'd like to learn more about these issues. And it cites GLAD as if it's a scientific authority. It also cites the American Public Health Association, which you think is a scientific authority, but then you go to its quote, health equity fact sheets, and the health equity fact sheets uh, say that uh, enforcing eviction moratoriums is an important uh, part of public health, um, Which the, and the CDC of course was doing that until a few weeks ago when the Supreme Court blocked it. Um, and as you go through this report and you go through what they're citing, um, it becomes very clear that what's going on is that this ideology is being woven into the very language of official medicine. Um, and so again, it's being depoliticized. It's essentially ideological character is being masked under this kind of technocratic veneer. Um, you know, uh, And that's happening at the CDC like you know the highest level of uh public health bureaucracy um and so what you see is that the, the very sort of you know best practices the ver- the very sort of criteria for for legitimacy um and for sort of just scientific accuracy so to speak that becomes identical um, from a sociological standpoint with the dictates of wokeism um so even so science itself is being wokeified, and precisely because it's science it's hard to see that it's being wokeified, since it's hidden behind the fact-based objective neutral language of science so it's really happening everywhere mm.
2: yeah this um this uh, pro- issue with healthcare institutions as you say seems particularly problematic Particularly, public health institutions during a pandemic, um, you worry that the more politicized they're perceived by the public, the less the public is going to trust any public health guidelines that they get. Um, and have you have you seen evidence of that? Have you seen evidence that the public um, is losing trust in these institutions, or that? It, and you could broaden that from public health as well because they're getting highly politicized yeah. guidelines.
1: Yeah, so here's here's one example. um, I think of the loss of trust, uh, the kind of pharmaceutical culture war that we find ourselves in, where Mm -hmm. everyone's arguing about ivermectin and vaccines, stuff like that. Yes, Um, there's an interesting pattern you'll notice, which is that things that are not very effective, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, um, and things that are very effective, like vaccines and to a lesser extent monoclonal antibodies both become objects of culture war. And things that are in the middle and kind of like objectively they work, but they don't work super well. I'm thinking of the uh, antidepressant drug fluvoxamine, which is done decently in clinical trials. No one pays attention to the stuff that's in the middle. It's all the stuff that either does work or doesn't work, like very unambiguously. Um, And I think the reason for this is that people don't trust the public health establishment so, you know, if the public health establishment issues, in many cases, I think a scientifically correct verdict, um, that something is really good or really bad, it immediately raises people's suspicions that, ah, they're, they're lying, they're not telling us the whole truth, and dissonant voices are being censored, right? You don't see that with the middling efficacy drugs. People just don't care. It's all the ones where it seems very straightforward. And you'd think there would be the least controversy that there's the most. And I think it's because people are like, oh, there's not enough scientific controversy among the experts. They're colluding. Something's going on there. This is about the narrative. Um, and it's unfortunate because, uh, many times the public health officials are actually right. And the vaccines actually do work. Um, you know, and ivermectin, while it may not be a death sentence or anything, it like probably is not going to cure you of COVID. It's not a silver bullet. But, you know, when the public health officials are so nakedly ideological, I think it fuels this kind of uh, culture war around COVID and including even, you know, this sort of pharmaceutical culture war within that culture war that has been uh, on the news so much in recent weeks.
0: And it fuels the mistrust, too, I think that you that you mentioned, you know, I mean, I see some people now just digging in their heels completely illogically around these vaccines, but it's only because it's become so political that they've started to yeah. dig in their heels. Right. And and, and if, if we found a way to depoliticize it, I think you'd have more people getting the vaccine, but now it's just become like, you know, just thumbing their nose at, at the administration, if you will.
1: Right. No, I think that's, that's it. I mean, the other thing I would just say is that some amount of politicization was probably inevitable because of how polarized the country is, but you know, like, like, I I think the particular kind of politicization we had and the sort of partisan polarities, maybe it was baked in, but I think it's a little more contingent and path dependent than people realize. Like suppose Trump had gone hardcore with lockdowns, you know, and aggressively promoted the vaccine at every possible opportunity, you know, instead of the whole stolen election thing, like if all his, his ammo on that had been spent telling people to get the shot, I bet you would have seen a far more liberals who are, if not outright anti-vaxxers, and certainly anti-vax curious. Um, you even did see a little of it, uh, during, during, in the run-up to the election where Kamala Harris said something like, you know, if Trump says to take the shot, I don't know if I'm going to trust it, which was a, a stupid thing to, to say. Um, and you know, in, in other countries, uh, it's been the right that has pushed lockdowns and the left that's resisted them. I think that's the case in Israel. And I don't know if there's as much of an organized left anymore in Hungary, but certainly in Hungary, you know you had Orban who who pushed for lockdowns and things like that. So it it really the, the polarization may be baked in, but I'm not sure the the alignment of the polls is mm-hmm. some iron law of, of politics. I think it could have very easily been otherwise, which is one reason that although I have very little patience for anti-vaxxers, I also have very little patience for the tendency of smug liberals to be like, oh, ha, 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 you know, those Trumpy conservatives who won't get the vaccine or killing themselves. First of all, as of a few weeks ago, only 27% of young African-Americans were vaccinated. And, you know, the New York times to its credit ran a story on that, but like, it's really a statistic that blows up a lot of the simplistic narratives. Um, And B like, yeah. Do, do we really think that, um, liberals would be so smug if uh Trump voters were enthusiastically getting the vaccine and it was, you know, still uh maybe, you know, African Americans who weren't, I bet the tone would be totally, totally different. Um so yeah, I I have I have very little patience for that kind of smugness.
0: You make such an important distinction. I mean the polarization is so grave, but the polls I mean I I think exactly what you said, because the polls shift That shows the polarization, right? That, I mean, we will almost blindly go one way or the other, depending on what poll, you know, we align with that just uh, it's polarization writ large. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, look, like, like at the very start of this, I mean, it was, it was, in fact, conservatives who took COVID more seriously in January and February, it wasn't necessarily mainstream conservatives, but you saw these weird right-wing anonymous accounts who were very worried about what was going on in Wuhan. And relatively early on, you had Tom Cotton raising alarms about a possible bioweapon in a laboratory that leaked and everyone's like, ah, it's a crazy far-right conspiracy theory. Then it turns out, oh, well, that might've happened. You know, US intelligence agencies aren't sure. Um, but yeah, like, like the, it, it flipped really quickly. Like it was, totally a it was a right-wing thing to be worried about then it was a left-wing thing to be worried about it's basically stayed that way for a while um i think partly because of trump and partly because there's just such deep distrust of the public health bureaucrats on the american right but you know even throughout the course of the pandemic it's not like the polls were fixed they moved around you know over the span of a few months which just i think goes to show how path dependent it is.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit more about the American Bar Association and its—it's—I uh, don't think it's ruled yet, right, Aaron? Yeah, it is not. It is not. It is strongly contemplating um, putting DEI standards. That was then met with some opposition from professors at Yale Law School. Um, what, what is the state of play there? What are they actually trying to do? And is anybody opposing it?
1: <laughs> well, so fortunately a lot of people are opposing it. So there were these ten uh ten uh sterling and emeritus professors, which is the highest rank at Yale you know, Law School. Uh, 10, they all signed this very strong letter to the American Bar Association opposing it. Um, Brian Leiter at the University of Chicago, some others. Uh, so it there's certainly opposition. Um I will say I was on a public Zoom meeting for sort of their accreditation committee uh, a couple weeks ago, which was hosted like a day or two after my piece came out. And no one at the meeting really indicated any serious concerns with the plan as written, or at least not serious concerns with the legal issues that the Yale Law professors raised. The Yale Law professors noted that the language in one of the guidelines was ambiguous and could be read as uh, encouraging schools to violate federal anti discrimination law in order to achieve diversity, uh, which is like pretty outrageous for a for a law school accrediting body to force its accredited schools to even just tiptoe around, not even necessarily break the law, but still to just go up the line of what is and isn't legal. It's pretty crazy, um, but they don't, you know. So far, I have not heard that any. Any indication that they're backing away from it, they haven't finalized it yet. So it's possible that if enough people oppose it, they'll quietly drop that particular proposal. But um, yeah, you know, it, it it's good that there is some pushback to it. It might be successful, but it does seem like sort of the bureaucrats, the, the most sort of central bureaucratic operatives within the ABA, uh, don't seem particularly concerned about. Uh, all the outrage, uh, that the plan has engendered.
0: Hey, Aaron, for our listeners, can you give a little background on what exactly it is the ABA is
1: proposing? Yeah, sure. So, so basically there's two things. One is, um, well, three. So one is mandatory anti-bias, anti-racism training, the content of which they will not dictate. They just are going to make you do it. Two is a mandatory professional responsibility a kind of ethics class, in which your students are required to learn that fighting racism is an obligation of lawyers. So they are dictating curricular content there, and they have not backed off that proposal, which also got a lot of people angry because it was, you know, infringing on academic freedom, forcing law schools to teach something you'd have to teach that you know racism exists in the legal profession in some form and that it's lawyers obligation directed by it that's part of the plan and then the third component which you know i find particularly galling is uh schools have to take active effective action they don't say affirmative action they say effective action but it's pretty clear what they mean to diversify their student bodies they don't offer any specific objective criteria for what would be sufficient to meet this standard or how diverse they'd have to be. But there's a line in there that says, um, you know, you can't cite, law schools won't be allowed to cite uh, federal anti-discrimination laws preventing consideration of race or ethnicity in admissions as a justification for not meeting that standard. So they don't say violate the law they just say, if the law is preventing you from effectively diversifying your student body, sorry, you're out of luck. We're not going to take that as an excuse. So, I mean, what it really does, I think, is it encourages schools to to do what Harvard is doing, which is to not set an official racial quota, uh, but to play all these games with like personality tests or what have you um, in order to achieve some kind of racial balance. And then, of course, the schools will say, oh, we're not. Doing racial quotas, we're just implementing a set of policies that has the exact same effect as setting racial quotas. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the most plausible outcome of this, if, if they go through with the plan, is that uh, you just see an intensification, you know, and, and more more schools adopting kind of the the, the pseudo quota system that Harvard already adopts.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also have uh looked at the private school accreditation process. Tell us about that story.
1: Yeah, so the the private school accreditation, um it, it's there's a subset of private schools. I mean, there's a lot of private schools in the United States, and they're not all like this, but the best ones and the most famous ones, the ones you've probably heard of, they're all part of this thing called the National Association for Independent Schools. And the National Association of Independent Schools is like a supra accreditor. It it maintains a list of approved regional accreditors um, and kind of outlines good practices and expects them to adopt and enforce. And so what that means is that, you know, if you wanna be part of the National Association for Independent Schools, you have to go to one of these accreditors who, is, who themselves are basically beholden to the National Association of Independent Schools. And the National Association for Independent Schools says that all accreditors have to make sure that schools are promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, which of course the National Association for Independent Schools defines in practice as supporting Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, that kind of thing. And those, and those figures and others who are similar have have done conferences with the National Association for Independent Schools, done conferences with their regional accreditors. I mean, it's very clear what they take diversity, equity, and inclusion to mean. Um, and then the other side of this is that there are a lot of DEI consultants who are who act ties to the accreditation agencies, including in some cases, they may even be the same people. Like um, one of the guys who the guy who runs. A lot of the diversity programming at the National Association for Independent Schools is also the head of a DEI consultancy group called the Glasgow Group, um, and all the consultants mm. in that group have, you know, positions with the NAIS, and some have positions with other accreditors too. So in practice, there's this, there's the flagrant conflicts of interest, where you'll have an administrator at a private school who's also part of a consulting group, who's also part of the accreditation body that's accrediting the private school. And so, you know, that person will say, oh, why don't we hire my consulting group um, in order to maintain compliance with these DEI accreditation standards? And that the result of this is that the the wokeism is basically just a requirement to be accredited by this big rather prestigious independent school organization. Um, and so, you know, sure enough, all the independent schools, uh, have gone woke kind of simultaneously. Um, and some of that is because of their true believers, of course, and you know, I, I doubt that Dalton would be significantly less woke were it not for these accreditation requirements. But I think on the margins, you know, it's like harder to start your own anti-woke school if there's this accreditation bottleneck. And for schools that maybe are a little less gung-ho about the ideology, there's still going to be this pressure for them to hire more and more DEI professionals and do more and more of these conferences um, because they don't want to be told in their accreditation, you know, when they're up for reaccreditation, they don't want to be told that they're racist and are in danger of losing their accreditation status. So there is a kind of coercive mechanism at play here where the schools can only really dissent so much from the accreditors without it being a problem. Um,
2: so I want to ask a different question because it's been on my mind. Um, I had you on the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values podcast, the speech cast, and I know you're Jewish. Um, one of the arguments that my organization recently made is that these ideologies, in that, in that as much as that they're illiberal, rigid systems of understanding hierarchy of privilege and the like, are fanning the flames of anti-Semitism, and as much as they are uh, a binary of oppressed versus oppressor, have you seen any of that? Is that something you agree with, or is that something that you just haven't looked at very closely? Yeah,
1: I, I think it's, I think it's broadly true. Um, One under discussed pathway by which I think they do that is uh, A, by coding Jews as white in the discourse, and B, by anathematizing white people. Um, Right. Now, you know, it may not be that they're singling out Jews qua Jews, although with the Israel Palestine stuff, there is some of that. But but often I actually think that the deeper issue is um, it. You know, when there is anti-Semitism, I mean, I mean, the very idea that you would conceive of Jews as a as a oppressed, protected class doesn't really gel well with this binaristic racial narrative in which everyone is either an oppressed person of color or a white oppressor. Because Jews are coded as white, so how could Jews really be oppressed? They're white. White people are the oppressors. I I mean, I and they're successful too.
2: I mean, on average, Jews are successful. Yeah, oh yeah, and that's
1: that's the other problem. Jews are among within white Americans. Jews are one of the demographics that um, often seem to provide evidence for the oppressor oppressed binary. Precisely because of among white Americans, Jews are uh, among the most successful. I mean, it's true. Uh, so yeah I think that's a big problem and one reason I think it's not talked about quite as candidly maybe as I just phrased it is you know it, it really what the, what this implies is that is that there is a kind of almost I would call it anti-white racism that interacts with and intensifies anti-semitism insofar as it kind of a lot you know makes it impossible to cognize groups as a as a victim of oppression. Um, People don't like to talk about wokeness as a form of anti-white racism, but I do think that that, there's at least some animus towards white people there that is is an important mechanism to perpetuate anti-Semitism. And so I think we ignore that at our peril. Um,
2: there, There have been people who have criticized me in recent days for coming out with exactly the kind of findings you just articulated and said uh, that we are practicing sort of Jewish critical race theory. In other words, we're looking at how biases are embedded in systems or ideological systems. And we're saying that's causing anti-Semitism and then here you are doing exactly what critical race theorists do and and calling it a cause of anti-Semitism. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that?
1: I mean, it's a clever, it's a clever comeback. I don't think it's super persuasive because A, um, yeah, there's a difference between finding, between saying that there are biases woven into a belief system and saying that there are biases woven into structures. First of all, critical race theory really says both of those things, that it's woven into structures and belief systems. And I think your claim is more that it's woven into a belief system, not so much say like you know the structure of liberal democratic capitalism, um, right. or something like that. That's, that's true. Um, that's but point. the other, the other, the other thing I would say is, look, you know, there's nothing a priori crazy about the idea that biases can be can be ingrained in very subtle ways into the way people think and talk. That's not crazy. And indeed, in the 1970s and 80s, when critical theory was first coming onto the scene. There frankly were just more examples of sort of very loaded language people would use because they didn't want to explicitly state racist opinions, but they clearly had some animus, and so you know it gets uh packaged in say i mean there there was a real law and order problem, but some of the law and order discourse you could point to probably did convey or serve as a vehicle for a kind of anti black racism i mean That's not like a crazy thing to say historically. Clearly there were points at which and people for whom that, that is how it worked. Um, But you know, there, there is, I think just less evidence for that charge now. And, and it just, it's, there is less of that woven, obviously woven into the fabric of our discourse. Um, I mean, the very fact that critical race theory has prominent defenders at all mainstream media outlets and in the U S military should tell you that the whole, the whole just discursive terrain has radically shifted. And that's, I mean, really the main reason, or one of the main reasons critical race theory is false, um, is that it just, it makes a series of claims and predictions about reality that even if they were true at one time clearly just are not true or are not true to anywhere near the same degree as you know now um and so with the you know to go back to the the charge your opponent's level against you i'd say look like uh this is an empirical claim and it needs to be falsifiable and you need to be able to show your work and say that these biases are are woven into uh you know, discourses of of leftism, intersectionality, whatever. But I think that you can do that, right? I mean, I think that you can see that uh, clearly the discourse right now wants to quote-unquote center um, a particular set of groups and grievances um, above others and that the discourse right now clearly does not conceive of Jews as people of color. I mean like I, I you know i would challenge your opponent to say so like which of those do you disagree with um do you think that Jews are considered a person of color in the discourse no i don't think you do do you think that the discourse is well maybe they would say oh it's still this like deeply racist thing but but unless you just are are like closing your eyes and living under a rock i mean how can you come to any other conclusion than that uh you know mainstream elite institutions are obsessed with racism and purging racism and white privilege, et cetera. I mean, I just think like the two central planks of my argument and yours are just so empirically obvious and unimpeachable that like to your opponent, I'd be like, well, we're right and critical race theory is wrong. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to.
0: but let me let me ask you something cuz you just said something that was interesting to me so you know, let's go back to the 70s and the 80s right where maybe some of the claims of of critical race theory were more correct than they are now i mean did i did i understand you right yeah
1: yeah i think i think some of them were more correct in the 70s than they are now right
0: yes. and and i and i agree with that but i'm wondering you know it's nice that critical race theory came in to at least force enforce the dialogue. And perhaps it's because of critical race theory uh, being introduced in the seventies and eighties where it was more uh, viable that we had this discussion. And so what, I mean, are we at a place now where it's like, it's, it's extinguished its usefulness. Like it was useful then because it forced the dialogue that actually perhaps was part of the reason why we don't need it anymore. We have, we realized that we were using language that really was destructive. And so has it just expired? Well, I
1: think, I think um, in some, su- yeah, the the language thing certainly, I think, you know, has largely expired, but I would actually say the bigger, the bigger issue is that in the seventies, it was reasonable to conclude that, most residual disparities were probably due to some form of racism or that, or that, you know, you couldn't really plausibly blame it on the groups who were on sort of the lower end of those disparities in any way, um, given how recent, uh, the the civil rights revolution had been, um, today, you know, there is still, I think, a real question about you know, what you, how quickly you would expect to see the gaps close um, when the sort of formal legal barriers are removed. And maybe the answer is just, you know, it takes longer than 50 years. It's going to take hundred or 150, but the further you get away, I think the harder it is to point to examples of kind of residual racism and the actual workings of systems as being sort of the, the main causal agent there especially because there are a whole lot of immigrants, including black immigrants from, say, Africa or the Caribbean, who who don't, who don't experience quite the same disparities um, as African-Americans do. Um, and so, you know, I think the deeper issue with critical race theory is that it kind of assumes that all disparities, or at least most of them, are rooted in racism of some kind. Um, But unless you just kind of tautologically redefine racism to mean the presence of racial disparities, which I think is is silly and wrong, um, it's not at all clear that systemic racism, you know, of the sort that existed pre-civil rights or immediately post-civil rights exists to, to exist today at least on anywhere near the same level and thus it's frankly not uh at all clear to me uh that we should be attributing the lion's share of disparities to racism and then of course the comeback is well what are you attributing you know them to Aaron are you saying people are inferior no i mean i i i think that there are a lot of explanations and you know most of the, mo- the most plausible ones don't don't absolve African Americans of causal responsibility for their own condition, but also don't necessarily blame them for it or, or um, absolve the rest of the country of any obligation to support policies that are designed to, you know, mitigate the conditions of, of you know, especially poor African Americans. Um, but look, like, you know, Charles Murray has this new controversial book where he says, you know, I'm gonna talk about the causes of racial dispar or the, the existence of racial disparities. I won't get into the causes, but you know, I'm gonna just say that like these are persistent and we really are bad at getting rid of them, we don't know how to, you know, and these are just facts. And the reason he says that is look, uh like if if you if you're not willing to say it's structural racism. You're left with a very limited set of answers. And if you're not willing to embrace one or some mix of those answers, you're not going to be able to fight critical race theory. So I do think it's important for people to just say, look, like clearly this is not all racism. Clearly some of this is either culture or it's maybe class. I think that's an under-discussed one. But you you know, you you've gotta be able to say at some point Fine look, not all the disparities are due to racism. In fact, many of them are not because otherwise you just can't win this fight.
2: Right, can you imagine though, I'm just, I completely agree with that by the way. And I think we liberals have so caved on the idea of culture, for example, that we've that it's it's very hard now to reclaim that ground and i'm trying to imagine like what would it be like to talk about disparities and let's say a senior social studies senior high school social studies class right where you say okay we're not going to teach a crt version of disparity we're going to diversify the conversation, bring in other sources, and we're gonna allow you, we're gonna ask you to read Ibrahim X. Kendi. We're also gonna ask you to read Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter and so Mm -hmm. forth, and read those sources and then have a discussion. Can you imagine schools being able to do that? I mean, just, we seem so far away from that. I think it would immediately be protested as racism, and I suspect rather than do that, they would just simply banish the whole subject matter from schools and not allow kids to talk about it. Mm. What, what What is your take? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what the, what the roadmap is for getting there other than just making the best
1: I I think, I mean, I think, I think it could be banished from schools. That's actually the best case scenario. Realistically, the worst case scenario, which is more likely is that they would just reprimand the teacher who assigned Lowry and say, but you can still assign Kendi, you know, that's fine. Um, I would say, and this brings it back to my reporting a little, uh, part of it is you have to go after the institutions that are that are kind of making this stuff into just background noise and in, and and sort of trying to inject it into the very air we breathe um and so you know i think that simply raising awareness about ha- institutional capture um is useful because it, A, gives people something to rally around. You know, I think Chris Rufo's reporting on schools and Fortune 500 companies has been useful because, A, he gave it a name, Critical Race Theory, but, B, he he identified a, a, a very concrete battleground, um, which was schools and companies. Um, uh, I think just, yeah, the raising awareness and, and raising awareness of its institutionalized character is step one, and then step two is finding political either either grassroots mobilization to reclaim institutions like you know showing up to school board meetings and things like that but i think it also frankly is going to have to have a political component because the logic of bureaucracy is an institution that there's this kind of natural tendency towards inertia um and it's not like you're going to persuade people with rational arguments, you know, you know, go to the go to the who is the was it her name Allison Collins. There's like that crazy school board person in, in San Francisco who, you know, was saying all these horrible things about Asians, you know, and right, right, right. Like, you're not going to. I mean, you're not going to persuade Allison Collins with a rational argument. Like what you have to do is remove her from the school board and make it harder for people like her to be elected. So, you know, you could make school board elections on the same cycle as, um, presidential elections. Like I've heard that that's a reform people have thrown out because then people will just be more likely to be engaged and they're not going to be these low turnout, activist dominated things. That's like a concrete thing. Uh, what else? I mean, you could, uh, you Can could, you be
2: should because liberal should liberals be illiberal in the way that they
1: battle illiberalism? Well, yeah, so this is always the issue, right? I mean, I don't think that changing when school board elections are is illiberal, right? No, um not, and I also not. don't think I don't think that a state legislature setting the content of school curricula as state legislatures already have the power to do. Like that's not in and of itself, illiberal, I think the way it's done often is too heavy handed. And, you know, like we do what Florida did, which was ban any, any perspective that does not locate sort of the essence of America and identity in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's stupid for a lot of reasons, one of which is that you basically just banned Russell Kirk, Sam Huntington, and David Hackett Fisher, Mm -hmm. um, which are like, things that all conservatives should read. And, and, you know, it's actually basically bans like kind of a conservative culturalist, you know, Anglo-Saxon account of American identity—stupid. But like, you know, there was a better. There are better versions of the bill that have been drafted. Like, uh, G- uh Jim Copland at the Manhattan Institute has put together right. draft legislation which is very carefully worded, designed to not ban discussion of the stuff, just ban sort of the promotion of it. But the most important thing it does is it promotes transparency and would require schools to disclose any materials that relate to race gender diversity civil rights anything like that you know I think that kind of thing is really quite consistent with classical liberalism you know it's based on its transparency and market oriented principles just giving parents the information you know um, it, it, it's it's a mix it's a kind of statist intervention designed to preserve the promise of classical liberalism um against the threat of institutional illiberalism i think that's probably the best approach i don't think it's perfect but the to the extent there's a role for state action it's in creating as favorable sort of propitious conditions as possible for uh people within a liberal system to fight back kind of within the means of You know, liberalism and democracy. Uh, You know, you can't, you can't like ban, you know, woke nonprofits and foundations that are peddling this stuff. As 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 nice as that might sound in theory, because that's the road to totalitarianism. Um, So, gotta the best thing to do is to just limit those foundations and nonprofits' ability to just totally capture everything um, and shut parents up. That's kind of, I think, all you can hope for.
0: Or I would say, like, teach DEI. That's fine. Teach diversity. But what David kind of going back, what they was saying is, what we're not teaching though is critical thinking. So where I I would love a class on diversity, where it is, like what David said, read this, read that you know, and, and actually make it a diverse, instead of what we, we keep on adding to the acronym, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and now it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Maybe it should be diversity, equity, inclusion, and critical thinking. Maybe it should be D-E-I-C. Well, you
1: know, where, I, I mean, I would, I would, I would actually, I mean, I might, I might just say it should be diversity, where mm, diversity is mm. understood to mean diversity of opinion, as right. well as diversity of, of skin color or religion for but sure. Uh, but i actually yeah you know I, I i will say i don't i don't well i'm all for making people feel included within reason and feeling a sense of belonging within reason but the reality mm-hmm. is that these are extremely subjective concepts um that are designed to be politicized and hijacked by competing ideological factions and so mm-hmm. i don't really want frankly, I I mean, I know like this is not maybe politically what like Chris Rufo should say. I mean, I would, I would not advise him or, you know, to do this, but like my actual view is that schools should like not really care quite as much as they seem to about inclusion because, or or rather like, I mean, I mean, if you really were serious about inclusion, you'd want to include the like evangelical Christian kids, right? right? But they don't, you know, and, 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 and we all know that they don't. And we all know that that's not really what inclusion means. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I, I don't even want to cede the language to them, quite frankly, um, mm-hmm. because they obviously, there's a whole network of nonprofits and special interests and administrators and bureaucrats who are invested in defining these terms in a very particular way. And I think it helps them when you use the terms yourself. And I just don't see why we have to, like, like we can, we don't, you know, we can convey that we care about some version of inclusion and diversity and equity or whatever, without, um without using the words. I mean, I just, you know, I mean the biggest, the biggest one that we absolutely should not give ground on I think is the term systemic racism. Mm. I mean, even if you think that there's a definition, uh, there's a sense in which that exists and is a problem It's just so poorly defined and so obviously part of this uh, mimetic closed system that really stifles all dissent. I I just, I don't think it's wise to use it, you know, Mm -hmm. talk about, talk about the legacy of racism. I think that's a little better. Talk about persistent racial disparities if you want. That's at least, you know, objective and descriptive term systemic racism, I think combines the descriptive and the normative in a really dangerous way. Like, I don't right. want, I don't, I don't actually want schools to use that word. Like, mm-hmm. I think it should be, we should actively push for the to get that out of schools, frankly. Wow,
0: yeah. Yeah,
2: I mean, you could just talk about systemic racism in the descriptive sense. I understand it's gained currency in the normative sense as well. And it's hard to sort of disentangle the normative from the descriptive in that way. I, I would I might push back. I mean it's an interesting point on DEI. I might push back because I think what's gonna happen is that companies, if we are successful in pushing back enough and, and eliciting a backlash year, are gonna still need a landing pad for diversity. There's still gonna be internal pressures. There's still going to be legal pressures because of the way that our law is set up around discrimination for companies to have DEI. So what you want to be able to do is say, oh, we're going to give you DEI, but it's going to actively incorporate viewpoint diversity there and thereby mitigate the effects of the ideology on, on DEI as uh, the way that it's done today. Sure. So, you know, um, but these are tough questions. And, you know, it's hard. It's such, It's so emblazoned in the public imagination that we need to have diversity at work but i'm not sure we would succeed in redefining that I mean, in the I public mean, mind the other
1: thing i would say is that that civil rights law may be a good tool um and there have yeah. already been attempts to sort of say look you know these anti-white struggle sessions this is this this violates this is beyond, the plain text yeah. of the civil rights law i mean i think that's a good a good tactic to kind of conservatives say, see, we stand for civil rights, we just stand for a universalist colorblind conception of it, and really push for that, um, that might, uh, and even maybe write laws that that specify, we, you know, the way we will interpret the civil rights law, which is great, by the way, we love civil rights, is that it applies to every group, including white people, including men, including cisgendered heterosexuals, it applies to everyone i mean that that i think is a place where you can maybe succeed in reclaiming reclaiming the terms precisely because there is this longer deeper tradition of a kind of colorblind civil rights discourse in the united states so there i agree with you that like you know we don't have to totally give up the language
2: well this has been very interesting and instructive and um i'm i'm so glad you've been covering the stories you cover because I think you have such an important niche and um, we're going to be reading you very carefully, waiting for the information that uh, you've been able to uncover that those of us sometimes in the activist world can't do on our own. So um, thanks for what you do and um, very much appreciate
0: it. Yeah. You know, Erin, I I, I was just going to add to that before I let you go. I mean, some of these stories that you told about the accreditation and the CDC, I don't see that anywhere else. I mean, the talk about critical thinking, I mean, you really looked at some of the background into both of those that I never have seen anywhere. And so, yeah, thank you for <laughs> keep keep doing what you're doing. I hope that it expands and that we see at least this access to information and in outlets outside of, you know, small niche. Niches. Right. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.